Welcome to the Park City Podcast, a podcast created by Park City Church to discuss who God is and how he is at work in our lives. I'm your host, David Morelli. Welcome back to the Park City Podcast. My name is David Morelli, and as always, I'm joined by my friend, Phil Schomber. Phil, how long do you think you would last in a zombie apocalypse? Uh, an hour, maybe. You know, <laughs> I, I, I was, you know, I was a philosophy major in college, and that doesn't really prepare you for that sort of thing. Um, neither, you know, does law school or seminary, not really. I guess if I had to, I, you know, I maybe could whip out a, an old philosophy book and start reading from it and maybe bore them to death or something like that. But, um, you know, they're already dead, so I don't know if that's going to work. Um, yeah. And I don't know if they sleep, so I don't know if I could even put them to sleep. So I think I'd have to rely on the kindness of strangers yeah. if I was going to make it past an hour. Yeah, I don't know how I do. I mean, it, there's like different kinds of zombies, right? Like I'm picturing the very slow moving. They always like drag the one leg as they like limp towards you to where like, okay, I could obviously I could run away from them, um, you know, but then like, okay, so it's apoptolic. Ap- wow. And try that again. Apocalyptic, you know, world that you're living in. So you're, you're surviving on using all the, you know, Bear grills survival skills, which, uh, you know, I camp, but again, I, I bring food with me. Um, so the, the hunting and, and foraging, I might be a little bit like Michael Scott when he, uh, you know, goes off into the wilderness and, and, and tries to do that for, for that one episode of the office. Um, so yeah, I don't know that I would last super long either. Yeah, I mean, if I escape the the zombies, you know, I'd, I'd be eating a you know mushroom that kills me, right. or you know some <laughs> some berry. I say, wow, this tastes good, and boom, drop drop dead. Yeah, yeah. so Cruel yeah, irony. there would be there would be lots of ways that I, I that, you know that I'd end up in a bad way. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll hope that that you know doesn't actually happen. Well. Uh, Back to our discussion then on Romans. Last week, we were looking at chapter 11, and we were talking about how the Lord continues to pursue his people. And so this week, we are wrapping up the series on Romans by discussing the last major section of the book, chapters 12 to 15, where Paul really gets into Christian conduct and how we live out the gospel. So he's just spent 11 chapters unpacking the beautiful doctrines of the gospel for us. And now that he's done that, he wants to unpack some of the practical implications, namely how we are to live a life pleasing to God. So Phil, why are the first two verses of chapter 12 so important and how do they serve as the foundation for Christian conduct? The opening two verses are important because they, they do two things. First, they summarize the response we ought to have to the mercy God has shown us, which as you said, Paul has just spent 11 chapters describing. And then secondly, they describe the change that needs to place uh, to take place to allow us to respond as we ought to. Now, in terms of describing the appropriate response, Paul uses sacrificial imagery. In place of the temple sacrifices of the Old Testament, as believers, we now offer ourselves to God. The imagery uh, here harkens back to chapter 6, where Paul said we are to no longer present any part of ourselves to sin as instruments of wickedness. Instead, we are to present ourselves to God. The idea is that in response to everything God has done for us, we ought to live lives that are completely devoted to him. 
And Paul says that living like that is worship. That means worship isn't confined to the songs we sing on Sunday or even, you know, the songs that we sing in the car on the way to work. Everything we do is an expression of our devotion to God. That life of devotion summarizes the response we are to have in light of God's mercy and in essence encapsulates the specific commands of the next couple of chapters. But before he gets to those commands, Paul then describes the transformation that first needs to take place if we're going to live that kind of life. Yeah, you're exactly right. God, in in response to what he has done for us, desires that we give ourselves entirely to him. That is our worship, as, as Paul says, and, and exactly what you're getting at there. Um, but as you just said, Paul calls us to be transformed in verse two and, and, and to do so by the renewing of our minds. He said, or really the reality of the gospel is that through the work of the Holy Spirit, that transformation happens. So God, through the Holy Spirit, works in such a way in our lives that when we respond to the gospel, we are transformed, as, as Paul is talking about. So, therefore, we no longer live as we did before Christ, but our lives now look different. So, there's a way to live now as believers that reflects the transformation we have experienced as a result of coming to faith. So, this is why the gospel isn't just something we believe, but something we actually live out. The gospel actually informs exactly how we ought to live our lives. And so, you know, we've just been in this series the gospel for real life, talking about exactly that. How does the gospel inform, you know, these, these areas? And this is why something that we've mentioned before in the podcast, gospel culture, this is why gospel culture is so crucial. Gospel culture is living out the gospel. It's aligning our lives such that our lives uh, uh, look more and more like Christ. And so the way we live our lives speaks to what we believe, right? It can either reveal beliefs that are aligned with the gospel or beliefs that are a contradiction to the gospel or, or maybe opposed to the gospel. And so the gospel is something that it's, it's more, uh, it's more than just what you believe. Actually, the way that we live that out indicates really kind of where we are in that transformation process and, and really, uh, speaks to this quote unquote gospel, I say as to what kind of gospel we are actually believing. Right. And, and I think, you know, it's important that we uh, grasp the connection that Paul is making between uh, the mind and practical living. Um, you know, it, it, as, as you're talking about, it, it's not just what we believe, but it's also not just what we do. There, there, there's a connection between that such that what we think, what we believe, uh, plays out in everyday life. And, and that is to say our worldview, the way that we think about people and the events around us, to a large extent determines how we live. Earlier in Romans, Paul described the results of God handing us over to depraved minds. If we are going to live lives devoted to God, we need a reversal of that process. And how does that happen? Uh, as you pointed out, it's it's through the work of the Holy Spirit, and we know from both Scripture and experience that the Holy Spirit uses God God's Word to renew our minds, and that's what makes regular time in the Bible so important. It's not just a matter of knowing more; it's about allowing the Holy Spirit to use God's Word 
to transform the way that we think about everything so that we start to think God's thoughts after him. And when that happens, our whole lives are transformed because as Paul says at the end of verse two, then we will be able to test and approve what God's will is. But we need that transformation in the way that we think to happen first. Exactly. And, and, and God is the impetus of that transformation, right? Again, just as you were saying, it's not, uh, it's not, okay, so believe the right things and now do all of these things to earn favor with God. This is the way that he will now, you know, judge you based upon, uh, you know, how well you adhere to this new way of living. It, it's, it's not that again, Paul has just spent 11 chapters saying you're not justified by your works. You're justified by faith. However, the reality of the gospel is that that transformation occurs a process of sanctification that we've talked about here on the podcast uh, and and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are then enab- enabled to actually live out the life that the Lord is calling us to. And so to, to simply believe the gospel, but to not see the fruits of that in our lives would indicate that there's something else going on. Uh, and so what this is what Paul is saying here is, okay, so everything that I've just explained in 11 chapters here, okay, so practically now, what does this look like? lived out? How does the gospel inform these areas such that we are reflecting the transformation that Christ accomplished for us, the Holy Spirit is enabling uh, within us such that our lives begin to look more and more like Christ. And so verses three to eight, then Paul dives in and he discusses all of the gifts that we have been given by God. Uh, Now, in light of the gospel, how are we to use these gifts? So one of the ways that our renewed thinking ought to manifest itself is how we view ourselves and our gifts in relation to other believers. And that's what Paul's talking about in this section. We are part of a body, and each part of that body has an essential role to play. The Holy Spirit has given each of us gifts, and we are to use those gifts in service of the other members of the body. Uh, But that requires that we recognize that everyone else in the body has a role as well. Everyone in the body has been given at least one gift, and their gift and role is no less important than ours. Now, that, of course, requires humility on our part, which is why Paul begins this section with the command that we not think too highly of ourselves, but rather consider ourselves with sober judgment. Right. I think when it comes to gifts and evaluating ourselves, we're tempted in either of two directions that... Either we, we think more highly of ourselves than, than we ought to or that then is accurate or realistic. Um, but I think the reverse is often true, too, where we say, well, you know what? I'm just not good at anything. You know, I don't think God's gifted me in any sort of way. Uh, and so it's kind of this false humility almost. And I think both are, are missing the mark because you're, you're absolutely right that all of us have been gifted by God in some way uh, for you know, the, for serving God and for serving the body of Christ and, and serving others. Um, but again, humility is important there too, to remember that you're not the only one, right? We are, we are all members of one body, uh, and the head of which is Christ. And so all of us play a role. Some might play, uh, larger roles or, or have more gifts or, or things, but none is, is more important as you said. And so, right. The humility there to say, I'm not here to do it all alone. If I'm operating from a, from a mindset that says, 
I'm really good at everything, so everyone else should just take a back seat. We're missing the mark. We need to read Romans 12.3 uh, and, and reflect on that a little bit. But uh, as Paul continues on in, in those few verses, he also talks about our attitudes with our gifts and, and how we ought to devote ourselves to the use of our gifts with eagerness and zeal, right? God doesn't give us talents and giftings so that we can do them begrudgingly. As if, well, you know, God gifted me in, in teaching, and so I guess I'll teach, uh, or, you know, whatever that gift might be. Uh, he calls us to be sold out in serving him and, you know, building up others through the use of that gift. So, you know, he says, if you teach, then teach for the glory of God. If you serve, then serve for the glory of God. And all of these things that say, look, this is why it's helpful to understand our spiritual gifts uh, so that we, we should be excited about them, right? And say, okay, God, what sorts of opportunities are you giving me to use the gifts that you've already given me to you know, serve others, to love others well, to care, to encourage, whatever that might be? Right, and I think that, that gets at that side of the equation that you were talking about where somebody might feel like, oh, you know, I don't have anything to to contribute to the, to the body, but that's why you know Paul doesn't list all the gifts, but he lists a number of them, and he says whatever your gift is, use it, and uh, you know he 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 talks about it in terms of the body, um, and sort of implying that we all uh, that that the body needs everybody doing uh, what God has gifted them to do, um, and that the body suffers with when that doesn't happen. So it, it validates any aspect, um, any gift, uh, that anybody may have, you know, Paul is, is, is saying you, you do have something important to contribute. In fact, it's not just important. It's, it's God given role that, that you have, which I think again, validates us, uh, no matter, um, how we might independently th- think, uh, you know, our, you know how we what value we may sort of uh, assign to our roles you know paul is saying you know that's that's not the case if you think too highly of it you're off if you think too lowly of it again god has given you um, a role and it, again i think it's important to understand that it's god giving these gifts so even in this case it's um, you know as we were talking about uh, throughout the first 11 chapters how we don't do anything to uh, earn salvation you know, that comes through here as well, that God has given us this gifts. He expects us to use them and wants us to use them for the benefit of the body. But again, it is, it's God ministering to the church through us. Hmm. Well, in the next section then, in verses 9 to 21, Paul describes characteristics of a life pleasing to God. So how does the gospel inform the marks of a true Christian? Yeah, so Paul begins this section in, in verse nine by saying love must be sincere. Um, and, and that that part of the verse serves as a, a sort of overarching category for the commands that follow, uh, which are in essence examples of what sincere love looks like. In verses uh, nine through 13, Paul focuses on what that looks like within the church. And then in verse 14, he expands outward and describes how love expresses, expresses itself toward those outside the church. And when you put it all together, sincere love is supposed to permeate all of our relationships. And that that makes sense when you connect the life we are to lead with the gospel Paul has described throughout Romans. Uh, 
Paul, on numerous occasions, has referred to God's love, uh, which prompted him to extend his mercy to sinners in the sending of his son to pay the penalty we deserved. Uh, And if love characterizes how God relates to believers and to the world more generally, it makes sense that love ought to also characterize our relationships with other believers and the world as well. Right. It's not surprising that Paul begins this section by noting the importance of love in the life of a believer. Right. Everything that Paul goes on to say here could be summed up in the call to love one another. And actually in chapters or excuse me, in chapter 13, Paul touches on that. He actually says that all of the law, the Mosaic law, the commands could be summed up in the command to love one another. Uh, and so as believers, I think we understand the importance of love, but another defining characteristic then ought to be how we treat those who treat us poorly. Uh, you know, Paul goes on to say in, in verse 14 that we ought to bless those who persecute us. In verse 17, we ought to repay no one evil for evil. In verse 19, to never avenge yourselves, right? So the gospel informs this area of our lives by telling us that vengeance Vengeance isn't ours, but is, in fact, God's. And and Paul there in verse 19 quotes from Deuteronomy 32. The gospel tells us that we do not overcome evil with more evil, but instead with doing good. Uh, And ultimately, by doing this, we entrust ourselves to God, understanding that he is judge, not us, and that he is making all things right. What sustains us amidst persecutions, amidst opposition, amidst whatever whatever kind of relational conflict we might experience in this life, it's that all wrongs are being made right, that one day those things will be no more, and that God is in control of those things. And so the gospel then ought to transform our relationships in this way, and that you know we, we are able to forgive freely because we are not judged, uh, that, that we ought to be extremely gracious and forgiving, uh, even in the midst of persecution or relational conflict. Right. You know, as, as we understand how God patiently endured our sin, our wickedness, prior to coming to faith in Christ, um, and, and even after, uh, when we understand the mercy that he's shown us, uh, that ought to impact how we look at others. Uh, you know, if God patiently endured us, but we don't, we aren't willing to, to extend that same sort of consideration to others, you know, I, I think we've, we've, we've misunderstood. But similarly, another aspect of the gospel that comes through, is, as you pointed out, God will judge sin. Um, and we can sort of be patient with people and not look to repay them because, again, God is going to do that um, at the appropriate time in the appropriate uh, way. And so w- when we take both aspects of the gospel uh, and trust in that and believe it, that, that, that works its way out in the life of a believer in this unexpected way because th- this sort of um, uh, expectation you know, would not have been common uh, outside of Christian circles, uh, the, the sort of recommendations would be almost the the exact opposite. Um, and, you know, again, Paul is saying here, 
when you understand the gospel, when you allow it to transform how you uh, think about other people, even those who have wronged you, um, it will show itself in these unexpected ways. Yeah, the remembering again what God has done, uh, you know, is so helpful. And I'm, you know, reminded as, as you were sharing that too of when Jesus is asked a, a question, you know, in his ministry, you know, how many times should we forgive people? And he says seven times 70. And it's this idea of saying infinite, <laughs> keep forgiving, never stop. And, you know, it shocks the, the, the one who asks the question because we all kind of want that. Well, like three times, you know, three strikes, then you're out kind of thing, right? So forgive someone, you know, two times. And if you do it a third, then, you know, well, they're probably just not going to learn. And, but that's not the gospel, right? All right. God has forgiven an infinite amount of sin in our lives. And because he has been patient uh, and steadfast and faithful, right? It, he wants and, and desires for us to live in that same way towards others. Uh, of course, when relationships are easy, uh, but especially when relationships are difficult of how that reflects ultimately the love of God for all people. Well, at the beginning of chapter 13, Paul talks about the relationship Christians ought to have with civil authorities. So how does the gospel inform this relationship? Yeah, so uh, similar to what we were just saying uh, before about the unexpectedness <laughs> of what God calls us to do, he calls uh, believers to do something, uh, at least especially in Paul's time, unexpected. Uh, he, God tells us to submit to the governing authorities because they are appointed by him. Uh, so why, why do I say that s submission uh, to authority you know, is surprising? in this case. Um, as John Stott and other commentators uh, point out, in Paul's day, there were no Christian governments. For most of Paul's readers, the governing authorities were either Roman or Jewish, and neither group was supportive of the gospel, uh, and they were often uh, even hostile to it. So we might expect Paul to say that the churches ought to actively resist the government, uh, but Paul doesn't do that. Why? because even the governing authorities in Paul's day were appointed by God and therefore believers ought to submit to them as part of their submission to God's authority. And, and what does Paul mean by submit? Submission is a, is a broader concept than simple obedience to a command. It, it's a general attitude we're supposed to adopt. As Doug Moo explains, uh, to submit is to recognize one's subordinate place in a hierarchy to acknowledge as a general rule that certain people or institutions have authority over us. And as Christians, we are to adopt this attitude towards governmental authority because we acknowledge God's ultimate authority over us and trust in his providential oversight. Right there, you touched on you know the attitude when we submit as well. It's not supposed to be begrudging. Uh, like, oh, you know, fine, uh, I guess I'll abide by you know, that thing, or I'll pay my taxes because, you know, I don't want the IRS coming after me. But there's a an attitude that, again, Moo's talking about there that, that Paul is getting at that says, okay, we're ultimately it's out of a thankfulness for God's institution, his sovereignty over that authority that, right, we, we then submit. And there's going to be many times, most likely, in which 
we may not like or agree with decisions made by those in authority over us. But what Paul is saying is we can still, even in those moments, honor and respect them, respect their authority. Uh, and of course, there may be situations where uh, we would be called not to submit, such as situations where you know a law would lead us to sin. Uh, of course, the, uh, the story of Daniel uh, gets at that. But what's even surprising in the story of Daniel is, of course, we know the accounts of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the furnace. We know Daniel being put into the lion's den. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of submittance uh, that ha- that all four of them display in that account. A lot of honor and respect given to Nebuchadnezzar um, that maybe he we could argue he didn't deserve. Uh, and, and so you see what, what Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do so well is that attitude of saying God is sovereign. God has instituted all uh, persons of authority, that they all ultimately serve him, that he accomplishes his purposes through them, as we, t- as we talked about in our discussion on providence. Uh, and so in light of the gospel then, similarly when we talk about forgiveness, we are entrusting ourselves fully to God and his sovereignty, not to the power or the authority of a civil leader. God is ultimately sovereign over all rulers and authorities and is seen to it that his plans and purposes are accomplished even when it looks like everything might be falling apart. Well, in uh, verses 11 to 14 of chapter 3, Paul exhorts believers to live in the light. So what is Paul getting at here and how does the gospel inform that? In essence, Paul puts uh, Christian conduct in an eschatological framework. Uh, we talk about the already not yet aspects of the Christian life. Uh, God's kingdom was inaugurated with Christ's first coming, and in that sense has already arrived, but God's kingdom has not yet been fully realized. That won't happen until Christ returns. Given that, we still live in the darkness of this world, or as Paul refers to it in the section, in the night. Uh, But the night will not last forever. The light of day will shine with Christ's return. And Paul calls us us to live as though that day were here. Uh, That is, to live in a way that is consistent with the light of God's kingdom rather than the darkness of this world. Well, first off, nice job pronouncing the word. Uh, (laughs) I'm not going to say it again (laughs) because no one needs to hear me try that. Um, But no, you're exactly right, right? One of the great doctrines of salvation is this new life we have in Christ as a result of being united with him, right? Paul touched on that in Romans 6 and 7. We're dead to sin, we're dead to the law, and alive in Christ. And what Paul is getting at here is the importance of remaining in close fellowship with Christ throughout the rest of our lives. As we've touched on it again and again, just because we have new lives does not mean we do not experience temptation to sin. Uh, And so... Paul's saying, look, the gospel has freed you from that such that you're no longer slaves to sin. But practically in our lives today, in order to flee from sin, to refrain from sin, we need Christ. We need the Holy Spirit. And so it's it's the importance of a, a, a consistent and, and, and personal relationship with Jesus that helps us uh, continue to fight sin in our lives that uh, to live in the light and, and not in the dark of night, as you know, Paul is saying here. And so the Christian life is, is really a constant renouncing of the flesh and its desires and ultimately clinging to Jesus. Uh, 
So finally then, the entire chapter of uh, chapter 14, as well as the first uh, 13 verses of chapter 15, are one long call to unity. So how does the gospel inform our unity, both with other, other believers and those outside the church? Well, as sinful human beings, it's really easy for us to focus on what divides us. That divisive attitude can raise its head anywhere, but it's especially tragic when that happens in the church. And, and why is that so tragic? It's tragic because God has called believers into one body, and he's serious about that. He went to great lengths to bring Jews and Gentiles together in Christ, and he's given all believers gifts and has structured things in such a way that the body, the, the church, needs each one of its members and their gifts. And there's a beauty to the unity God brings out of our diversity. Uh, and when we understand what God has done in saving us and bringing us into one body, we ought to want to preserve that unity. That's why in Philippians, Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. He makes essentially the same call here in Romans, urging us not to let the things that could divide us succeed in destroying the unity God has brought about. Yeah, one of the temptations we experience is comparing ourselves to others. And I think when we do this, we often think of ourselves in a more favorable light, maybe than what is realistic. Uh, and therefore, you know, forgetting what, what Paul talked about in, uh, in chapter 12. Um, but we often put ourselves in, in a position of judge over others when, again, as we've discussed, that's not our responsibility. Uh, you know, and, and in these verses, Paul is using Jewish food laws to demonstrate this point and, and a real-life example at that day. Uh, but other examples, you know, would work in our day, of course. And we often look at other Christians and think, hmm, what they're doing there is is so wrong. And, and there, of course, are times where, you know, that may really be the case and, and, and you know, gentle, caring conversations are needed in order to help others see their errors. Uh, but what Paul is getting at here is a situation where there's no right or wrong, but really it depends upon what the person is comfortable with. It's conscience. Uh, and so Paul is saying, look, don't mock and ridicule others for their practices when ultimately what they're doing isn't wrong. Instead, because of the gospel, we ought to be about building others up. Uh, at the start of chapter 15, Paul uses Christ as an example of doing good for another, even when you disagree. Of course, Christ is our example in, in all things. And then in verse 7 of chapter 15, Paul says this, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. When did Christ welcome us? When we were sinners, enemies of God, children of wrath, right? That's when Christ opened his arms towards us and said, come. So why would we let matters of preference interfere with Christian unity and not just Christian unity, but again, in our relationships with non-believers as well, right? How do we welcome others as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God? We absolutely live in a very, very divisive world right now. Uh, and there are, there are certain things, of course, that again, require more nuance and more conversations. Uh, but about 
matters of preference, things that, you know, someone might be comfortable watching that movie while another person might not. And why would we sacrifice a beautiful thing of unity purchased for us by the blood of Christ for matters of preference? And so that's what Paul is getting at here. Instead, we ought to, like Christ, with him as our example, welcome others for the glory of God. Exactly. You know, it, it's similar to what we were talking about uh, with submission. There's there's an attitude here. Yes, there are times when uh, truth may require us um, to point out somebody's error, uh, but that looks much different with an attitude of wanting to preserve unity and understanding the grace God has shown us uh, and which prompts a willingness in us to extend grace to others, that looks very different than an attitude uh, that is looking for error and wants to pounce on it uh, and doesn't care what um, chaos it brings within the church or or division that it causes. Um, uh, And so, you know, uh, balance is always important uh, you know, but again, Paul is, you know, saying that he wants us to put uh, a priority on maintaining that unity. And when that's our attitude, when, uh, again, we allow the, the gospel to transform our hearts in the way that uh, we think and look about, uh, look at the church and the people in it. Um, you know, again, the life in the church looks much, much different when we uh, allow the truth of the gospel to transform um, uh, how we see unity within the church. Mm. Well, we will pause the discussion on the book of Romans there for one last time. Uh, Phil, of course, thank you so much for all of your thoughts and wisdom and, and insight throughout this series. It's been fun to walk through uh, the book together. And uh, I know it's been, been beneficial and, and encouraging to me. And I hope, I hope as you're listening as well that uh, you feel the same. Uh, so as I said earlier, this is the final episode of this series. So where are we going from here? Uh, well, as Corey mentioned on Sunday, we are starting a new discipleship pathway called Rooted. And so in order to give that resource the time and attention it deserves, as well as to spend some time evaluating all of our resources, we are going to be pausing the podcast for at least the remainder of 2022. So there's a possibility that the podcast will will return in 2023, but a date has yet to be determined or or if that'll happen, that hasn't been determined yet. And so we're going to continue throughout the fall here to evaluate what resources are most beneficial for our church family. Now, that said, uh, Phil and I are so grateful for you, and we hope, again, that you have found these discussions encouraging and beneficial in your walk with the Lord. So for the final time in 2022... We are signing off. We hope you have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Park City Podcast. We hope this resource helps you to see and savor God's goodness, beauty, and grace in your life. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.parkcitychurch.net. Once again, thanks for listening.